This is Unfilter, episode 162, for October 14th, 2015. It's the biggest trade deal in history. 12 countries representing 40% of the world's economy. It's taken more than five years of intense negotiations to seal the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The one major economy not included in the deal? China. China. Our goal with China. The deal will create an economic bloc challenging China's influence at a time when the communist country is asserting more economic and military posture. Welcome to Unfilter, episode 162 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show that's distracting you from all of that TV you shouldn't be watching. My name is Chris, and I am pumped up. Today's episode follows right on the heels of 161, which we did on Sunday. It's a double episode week this week because so much is going down that I wanted to dedicate both episodes to really important topics. Now, of course, we still got the regular news. We're going to do the best or maybe the worst of the debates, whatever you want to call it. And then we'll also get into some terrorism news and a few other things. We're even going to end on a high note if we have time, but I thought today we should probably spend a little bit of time talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and this is a massive, huge trade deal that we still don't know all the details yet, but thanks to producer Matt, myself, and a lot of really awesome audience members, we have gotten some really good research done on probably the provisions that are going to affect our audience the most. That's the copyright stuff and how they're going to apply copyright law universally to all the agreeers of the TPP. Uh, Yeah, that's the cute name, by the way, for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Don't worry if you're not familiar what it is. We're also going to explain that in today's episode and sort of key in why, for those of us who are online, this might be a big deal regardless of, uh, well, what if you're in one of these nations in the uh, 40% of the world's economy, this is going to impact you. So there's a lot of things to cover in the TPP, but we're going to start with the copyright stuff once we get into it. Now, of course, this wouldn't be on filter without all of the other news. And this one does sort of bookend very nicely 161, which is a was a which which was a tight episode, so that way you have time to listen to it. Hopefully this one will be tighter as well, so you have time to listen to this one. But it also gives us a little more room to cover some events that happened this week. Uh, you probably heard the big debates were going down. The big debates for the first Democrat debate. And, oh, Biden didn't make it, blah, blah, blah. All that, of course. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're going to cover some of the interesting bits that are relevant to stories we've been following on the Unfiltered Show. We won't spend a lot of time on the debate. But let's start with uh, Hill Dog and uh, the, of course, email probe question had to come up by everybody's favorite, Anderson Cooper. Clinton, you are going to be testifying before Congress next week about your emails. Oh my gosh, it's Anderson Cooper, everybody! I just want to point something out before we go any further here. And Cooper did a did a fine job tonight. Um, although if you watch the debates, you probably heard uh, you probably heard um, Wolf call uh, Hillary president. <laughs> That's kind of adorable. Uh, that slipped out. But uh, one of the things that bothers me about Cooper asking, and I don't know why all of a sudden it doesn't matter anymore, because it made a huge deal when it was on ABC. Remember Stephanopoulos? Stephanopoulos? Yeah, remember how he got in trouble for being a Clinton Foundation member, a contributor to the global initiative by the Clintons? Well, guess what? So is Anderson Cooper. He is a contributor to the Clinton Global Initiative. And I, and I, 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 and I don't know how much, I couldn't find the numbers, but it's enough that he has a special status in the Clinton Global Initiative. So it's probably more than $20,000. That man right there asking these questions. 
Also, he's a former CIA agent. So there's that as well. The last eight months, you haven't been able to put this issue behind you. You dismissed it. You joked about it. You called it a mistake. What does that say about your ability to handle far more challenging crises as president? Well, I've taken responsibility for it. I did say it was a mistake. Uh, What I did was allowed by the State Department, but it wasn't the best choice. And I have been as transparent as I know to be, turning over 55,000 pages of my emails, asking that they be made public. And you're right, I am going to be testifying. I've been asking to testify for some time and to do it in public, which was not originally uh, agreed to. Now, I want to say, I think I was talking about this in the pre-show to the supporters. I suspect that depending on how she performs during this, uh, it's going to set the tone for the email controversy. I still think it has potential to be wrapped up by January. That's my original Red Book prediction. However, I'm leaving myself the flexibility to change that depending on how she does in that testimony. But let's just take a minute here and point out that this committee is basically an arm of the Republican National Committee. It is a partisan vehicle, as admitted by the House Republican Majority Leader, Mr. McCarthy, uh, to drive down my poll numbers. Big surprise. And that's what they have attempted to do. I am still standing. I am happy to be part of this debate. And... I intend to keep talking about the issues that matter to the American people. You know, I believe strongly that we need to be talking about what people talk to me about. Like, how are we going to make college affordable? How are we going to pay down student Secretary, debt? How are we going to get health care for everybody? And Secretary, get the Clinton, prescription Secretary Clinton, down? with all due respect, it's a little hard. I mean, isn't it a little bit hard for you to call this just a partisan issue? There's an FBI investigation. And President Obama himself just two days ago said this is a legitimate issue. Well, I didn't I never said it wasn't legitimate. I said that I have answered all the questions and I will certainly be doing so again before this committee. But I what is you see Bernie's mouthing as he's as she's talking. If you're watching the video version, you might notice this. Uh, By the way, I think she actually handles these questions pretty well. She seems pretty calm. Of course, rehearsed. You knew this was going to happen. But uh, I'll I'll back it up just a bit and just take a look at Sanders if you're watching the video version. Answered all the questions and I will certainly be doing so again before this committee. But I think it would be really unfair not to look at the entire picture. This committee has spent four and a half million dollars of taxpayer money. That's a good talking point. Four and a half million dollars. Now, I think what she's actually talking about is the total cost of the Benghazi investigation, which led to this, not just the investigation of the email. I haven't been able to verify that yet, but that's my guess. And they said that they were trying to figure out what we could do better to protect our diplomats so that something like Benghazi wouldn't happen again. There were already seven committee reports about what to do. So I think it's pretty clear what their obvious uh, goal is, but I'll be there. I'll answer their questions. But tonight I want to talk not about my emails, but about what the American people want from the next president of the United States. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? And of course, uh, (laughs) Bernie jumps right in with with a zinger of the night, really. Let me say something that may not be great politics. But I think the secretary is right. And that is that the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Thank you. Me too. Me too. (laughs) The middle class. (laughs) And let me say something about the media as well. Man, Bernie had some fans in the audience. Uh, They were clapping all the time for it. Good support in the audience. I go around the country, talk to a whole lot of people. Middle class of this country is collapsing. 
We have 27 million people living in poverty. So the problem is, is he comes across kind of rattled, scattered and angry. And Hillary comes across, across as calm, collected, like she's not worried about any of these people being her competition. We have massive wealth and income inequality. Our trade policies have cost us millions of decent jobs. Oh, we're going to talk about that. The American people want to know whether we're going to have a democracy or an oligarchy as a result of Citizens United. Enough of the emails. Let's talk about the real issues facing America. Listen to that applause. And then they shake hands. <laughs> Listen to that, huh? Boy, that's a real swinging. That's a tough debate. She had a, they, he got a standing O, by the way, from the audience on that. Uh, and uh, this one's kind of funny. This next clip is sort of revealing, and it's kind of a funny note uh, to wrap up our debate coverage for today. Which enemy are you most proud of? <laughs> Can I just say how much I hate how much I hate the media and the way they make this a battle and a horse race, how much they make this a competition when it's really it's really just I mean, come on. They're just trying to milk it for ad sales. I guess the coal lobby. I've worked hard for climate change and I want to work with the coal lobby. Uh, but in my time in the Senate, I tried to bring them to the table so that we could address carbon dioxide. I'm proud to uh, be at odds with the coal lobby. The National Rifle Association. Well, in addition to the NRA, um, the health insurance companies, the drug companies, um, the Iranians, um, that's funny one. The Republicans. <laughs> She's coming for you, Republicans. She is coming for you, man. That is going to be a show. Someone who has taken on probably every special interest that there is in Washington. Uh, I would lump Wall Street and the pharmaceutical industry at the top of Preach my it, brother. of people who do not like me. <laughs> I'd have to say the enemy soldier that threw the grenade that wounded me, but he's not around right now to <laughs> talk to. That guy is so not winning. <laughs> that guy is just so not winning. It's so obvious he's just up there to get some name. Uh, it's so funny. Uh, and then before we get completely off the email, you heard it in there. You heard it mentioned that the Obama administration is wiggling around about Hillary's emails. Is it a national security issue? Because if the president says it's a national security issue, that might hurt the campaign. The White House backtracking on comments President Obama made about Hillary Clinton's emails. In a recent interview, 60 Minutes Sunday night, the president said Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server was a mistake but did not endanger national security. Josh Ernest now trying to clarify that statement. Watch. It certainly was not an attempt uh, in any way uh, to undermine the importance or independence of the ongoing FBI investigation. So does he in fact not know until the results of the investigation whether or not this could have had an impact on national security? Well, I think, again, I think that's, um, you know, Is that what you're saying? the president wasn't speaking uh, based on any uh, uh, information that has not yet been made public. Okay. Katie McFarland, Fox News national security analyst. She also served as deputy assistant secretary of defense of the Reagan administration. And Katie, good morning good to morning. you. Now, we all love Katie. And by love Katie, I mean we think she's obnoxious. But one of the things that we get along with Katie about is I think she despises Bill. I don't think she likes him at all. But today they get along a little bit better. But we played clips in the past where you can tell she just doesn't like the guy. Let's try and make some sense out of this yeah. right now. What yeah. is the dilemma? The president says, A, on Sunday night, we get this yesterday from the White House. Here's the big dilemma. The president does not want Hillary Clinton to succeed him in the White House. Now, she's going to build a case as to what she's going to build a case that behind the scenes, Obama is is making it hard for Hillary to win. 
And she twists some facts, but she eventually gets there. So let's stick with her because it's an interesting theory. But he doesn't want to have his fingerprints on getting rid of her. So on one hand, he says, well, she didn't endanger national security. But he now has three agencies in his own administration investigating her. The the Justice Department and the FBI, Mm -hmm. the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community. They're not technically investigating her yet. The Inspector General of the State Department. So you have a lot of people looking into this. Does any of that happen without without the president's approval? Now, this is actually a good question. That's actually a decent question. Think about it. Would it? Would you go after the former secretary of state without at least checking with the uh, commander in chief first, the boss, the president? I don't think so. I think you probably would. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back to uh, I'm thinking back to the history that I've read for th- sort of similar investigations like this. And it always is it, in every case, it's going across the president's desk. So if you look at history, Usually decisions made at this level. I mean, just look at the stuff between the Justice Department and Bush when the illegal wiretapping stuff was going on. I mean, very, very fascinating. Very, very much those kinds of decisions did go across the president's desk. Not a chance. Does not? No. Look, he he could end this? Well, I don't know if he can end it having started it. But but to unleash those dogs on Hillary Clinton, you know, maybe they would go on their own to investigate some mid-level bureaucrat, but not in the State Department investigating their former boss. That actually rings true with me. Or investigating their potential future boss. That happens because somebody in the White House has said, go look and see what's there. I think the the Obama administration, if you look at the timeline of all this. Now, her reason on the timeline here does not hold up to me, but I don't think it has anything to do with it. It started happening about the time that President Obama talked about a third term. He said, I could run for a third term. I'd be elected. I'm so popular. It's also known that if you want to have fundamental change, which Obama does. Now, this is known, you guys. This is known, according to KT. Of America at home and abroad, you need 12 years to do it. You can't do it in eight. So it's a universally known fact that if you're a president of the United States and you want to make change, you have to do it in 12 years. How is that even technically possible? They're legally only allowed a max of eight years. That doesn't hold up to me. But she kind of does bring it back to something that does make sense is maybe you'd want to have a direct hand in picking your successor, one that you think will move your legacy forward. Eight years is gets you there, but 12 years locks you in. That's why he needs to control the next president. And that may not be Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders said, hey, you know what? I'm sick of hearing about your darn emails to clear up the language slightly. Well, maybe he is, maybe the public is, but the investigations are ongoing. I don't think you pull those back at this point. They're now going to find their own way. And remember, there are two sets of investigations. One is the three government agencies, and the other one is the United States Congress. Now, as a national security analyst, do you believe, based on the president's statement the other night, that he was right, or indeed was the use of this server um, endangering national security? Now, this is where it gets really good. This is what we've been waiting for. This is why we've been patient and listening to KT and Bill yak back and forth. This is where it gets so thick. And we're going to just get your fork and we're going to just cut through some cyber, you guys. We're going to eat some nice, hearty cyber. Putting it at risk. I talked to intelligence official uh, oh. people and I talked to people in the cyber world. And- the cyber world. So she talked to an intelligence official uh, people and people in the cyber world. Well, technically, our entire chat room is in the cyber world, so it could be somebody from the chat room. And they've said, look, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, they hacked into her stuff from the very beginning. They were reading in real time her emails. So, for example, every time the United States went into a negotiation, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, they knew what our negotiating position was. Do you think that's true? Okay, so let's play this back. Let's listen to what she says, and then let's break that down, because I actually have a theory here. Server. Um 
endangering national security, putting it at risk. I've talked to intelligence official, uh, people, and I've talked to people in the cyber world, and they've said, look, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, they hacked into her stuff from the very beginning. Now, here's what I would say if I was an intelligence official. If uh, KT McFarlane from Fox News came to me and asked me, do you think it's likely that the Russians had access to Hillary's email? You know what my answer would be? Ma'am, we assume everything's hacked all the time. We operate under the assumption that everything's being monitored all the time. I bet you that's what they said. And then KT's taking that because that sounds like a very military look at it. Ma'am, we always operate under the assumption that we have been compromised, right? That's, that would be their outlook on it because that's the safest thing to assume. So, that, so then you don't use public email systems for that kind of thing. They were reading in real time her emails. So, for example, every time the United States went into a negotiation, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, they knew what our negotiating you position was. think they knew in. everything. I think they knew everything. And that is one reason, I think, why we've done so badly in all the negotiations. Wow, that- so because Hillary Clinton's emails were on a private server and hacked in real time by the Russians, that's why Obama has sucked so bad at all of his, all of his policies, all of his efforts over there. Everything has gone wrong in Syria. All of the Russian aggressions, all of Putin's advanced chess moves are all because they were reading Hillary Clinton's emails email in real time. Wouldn't that be a great scapegoat? I mean, just think about that. That's that's brilliant. And Fox is handing it to the Obama administration on a silver platter. That that is remarkable, if true. Uh, AP says this, Hillary Clinton's email server connected the internet in a way that made it vulnerable to hacking risk. All right. So made it vulnerable to hacking risk. The AP says this. Now, why would they say that? What do you suppose that means? AP investigation. All right, that's not the FBI. That's not the Department of Justice. Not the state. It's the AP. Appeared to allow users to connect openly over the internet to control it remotely. So SSH. Two other devices run in her Chappaqua home in New York. So two backup servers. And actually, it's interesting they're saying this now because this really hasn't been talked about by the media. But when this first came out, <clears throat> the very first thing I did was look at the who is and MX records for Hillary Clinton's mail server. And they had, they had multiple MX destinations set to the same priority. And what that means is, is that there was very likely email being sent to two destinations. I would assume spam filters, like, you know, there's there are services out there that you send your mail to and they do archival and spam and, and virus filtering and they forward it onto your mail server. Were also accessible from the internet, that from the Associated Press. Yeah, and not even. The- now, those, now, I want to, since I kind of stepped on what Bill said, the servers were accessible from the internet. While home in New York were also accessible from <clears throat> the internet. Now, I don't know if Bill knows this. Probably doesn't. Email servers don't work so good if they can't talk to the internet. Now, there's a lot of ways you can set that up. But for example, if you know the IP address of Hilldog's server and you try to connect on the SMTP port, it's likely some device on that network is going to answer that. Maybe it's a firewall. Maybe it's, in a, it's a higher up in the, in the connection. It's a, it's a spam box. But it's taking email from mail servers. That's sort of the nature of an email server. Of course it's listening to remote connections. That from the Associated Press. Yeah, and not even the Republicans. This is an independent media source. I, I, not like us. Not like us, the Republicans. Most experts I've talked to have said she was hacked. She was hacked from the very beginning. And it probably wasn't even alone, just her hacks. Who'd she send emails to? Because you remember... Uh, she was emailing other people. And so if you're emailing other people, well, if you hack one email account, then you could automatically hack all the other accounts that you get emailed. Could they have used that to sort of piggyback and jump onto hacking other people who were using potentially personal emails to talk about these things? Uh, no, that's tomorrow. what... KT, thank you. Can't that's what the, the NSA does. Studio with us. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, KT. Good stuff, KT. Thanks a bunch. All right, let's uh, stop talking about Hillary and let's transition into a little terrorism news. So I love this first story. It... it uh, 
it is sort of it's sort of rewarding to see something that we picked up on a long, long time ago and started talking about. And we're going to talk about it again this week. I know I talked about it on Sunday show. I just got some interesting details now in this clip. Yeah, you probably figured it out. I'm talking about all of the Toyotas that ISIS is driving around. And after we after we get to this clip, I've actually done some further research into this. And they're not only driving Toyotas, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, first, a lot of people have been asking questions, and now there's supposedly an investigation. So RT picks up the story. Islamic State terrorists are maybe driven by hate, but it's what they're driving that's been raising more than a few eyebrows of late. Gratuitous shots of Toyotas. But if you actually look, there's, they're not all Toyotas, but we'll get to that. It is a lot of Toyotas. Among all the uh, car brands available, and perhaps to its uh, disappointment, Toyota has proven to be most popular with the jihadists. You would think Toyota would at least change the... Oh, that's going to get us pulled down right there. I forgot about that. I actually thought about that earlier. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So John Oliver makes some funny points about it. But to be honest with you, uh, if I play this on YouTube, they'll pull us down. So I'm going to just jump ahead uh, a little bit, hopefully. And we probably will... Is built in vanity plates. He's mentioning the Toyota has Washington an ISIS brand. Now pressing the Japanese car maker on why so many of its vehicles are ending up in ISIL's hands. Now, this is true bureaucracy at work. So one one division of Washington is pressuring the Toyota company. How are all of these trucks showing up while another division of Washington is buying the trucks and shipping them to ISIS, quote unquote, rebels? Well, last year, the U.S. was reported to have sent a fleet of Toyota trucks to militants from the Free Syrian Army. The vehicles were part of a large aid delivery to the so-called moderate Syrian opposition. And on Monday, a U.S. military cargo plane airdropped more than 50 tons of ammunition to rebel groups. And throughout the conflict, Washington also supplied them... That was recent, 50 tons. ...with anti-tank missiles and grenades. And it's not the only nation to... So the U.S. gave them Toyota trucks, anti-tank missiles, small weapons, ammo grenades, and combat medical packs. The U.K. gave them body armor, trucks and SUVs, solar-powered batteries, radios, and laptops. Think just for a moment how great it would be if they gave those to their own citizens, citizens that are disadvantaged even. Or if they had some sort of discount program where people could go buy them at a, at a U.S. government discount instead of giving them to jihadist fighters and mercenaries. Wouldn't that just be an amazing thing if that money and those trucks were given to the citizens that paid for that stuff? We provided uh, rebel groups with the support, the UK, supplying body armor and uh, SUVs worth millions. And that's despite the uh, free Syrian army commanders previously admitting to collaborating with Islamic State and attacking government positions in Syria. A former U.N. spokesman for Iraq says there is no way Washington can ensure its aid and weapons don't go straight into the wrong hands. The United States lacks real intelligence sources on the ground. They don't know who's who. It is not surprising in the sense that we have seen this happen before. Um, in the past, the United States dropped equipment to alleged um, uh, moderate oppositions only to end up in the hands of extremists. You might remember when we covered that in the show. They termed these trucks, uh, apparently, as uh, non-lethal weapons, while, in fact, they have been used lethally. Spokesmen have always said that they can be equipped with mounted machine guns and even tow missiles and man pads. But there is absolutely no way to guarantee that this, uh, this type of equipment does not end up in the hands of extremists. Obviously, as we've seen, and we've talked about the airdrops, too. 
Um, we're going to talk more about those. So uh, I want to talk about this story. This is sort of a sideways way to get into my research, but it kind of does fit with it pretty well. An image of a child smiling with a gun. Another of this girl cradling an assault rifle. The day these photos appeared on Mora's iCloud account was a day she called the FBI. <laughs> but these photos are not the place where Mora's curious story begins. It actually starts in the Hamptons, just east of New York. After a long night out, Mora couldn't find her phone. CNN isn't using her last name to help protect her identity. By the way, CNN is showing a series of really nice images. They're all just stock photos from Giddy Images. I don't even know why they bother. Mora opened the Find My iPhone app and soon found her wayward device not far away in New York City's Harlem. Mora tried to call the phone with no luck. It vanished from the tracking map and she gave up on it completely until she got a tracking alert from an unlikely place. I couldn't quite believe that the little phone made it all the way to Yemen. The same Yemen where more than 2,300 civilians have died in the last six months due to ongoing and brutal conflict. And if the mere fact that Mora's phone was in Yemen wasn't strange enough, new photos began streaming into her iCloud. Men posing with jambias in their belts, curved daggers, essential to any tribesman's wardrobe. Notes written in Arabic. But there were a few pictures that came in with uh, that showed young children holding sort of what looked to me to be big guns. Um, <laughs> so I found that a little alarming initially. Um, just, Their culture is weird to her. Just, it's, it's not something you see every day. Mora's family contacted the FBI just in case. Mora got in touch with the journalist friend, Will McGrath, who detailed her account in the Atlantic Monthly. An initial wave of confusion and alarm slowly turned into fascination. You know, some of the, the pictures that were showing up on the phone or, you know, things written into the phone are, you know, turn out to be love poetry or, you know, a prayer or pictures of, you know, this kid posing at a construction site. They seemed like things that I probably did as a teenager as well. Mora had access to a peculiar portal, seemingly looking through a keyhole into the world of a family halfway around the globe. That phone got around. Yemen. You know, the more time we spent with the pictures, it seemed like you start to see some things that are pretty universal. You know, you see families hugging each other. You see people taking pictures of their food and their dinner, you know, like might show up on any American's Instagram feed. Then, without warning, the photos stopped. The notes ceased. The phone, the portal, went silent. It's quite likely that the phone broke. Uh, it's, you know, electricity right now in Yemen is very touch and go. Thanks, Saudi Arabia. So it's quite likely that the people who are taking the photos simply don't even have electricity or Internet uh, access. There was no way to know. No matter why the photos stopped for Mora and McGrath, the images and notes humanized a distant, unfamiliar place. There's people over Yemen there. Yemen may be mired in conflict, but people still take photos of their families. And a picture doesn't always tell the whole story. I don't understand why they're not in caves. So this is what's interesting about this. So I started looking into this, and I followed that reporter from The Atlantic, and I followed the FBI investigation as much as I could find anything online. And it's, she's not the only one that's had this happen. This apparently is a sort of common occurrence. And the other really common thing that ends up over there that people are shocked by 
is vehicles. Entire vehicles are showing up over there. Vehicles, used electronics, and and it's a, it's it seems to be a mixture of wholesaling and um, maybe even gang related activity. It's really fascinating stuff if you want to dig around in how sometimes used components get to the Middle East. And uh, um, I just found it to be an interesting rabbit hole to go down because one of the more common things apparently is. Ford F-150 vehicles. That's another popular one by ISIS, ISIL, I mean Dash. I mean, they don't ever tell you, really. And they always talk about the Toyotas now, but there's other vehicles over there. And uh, some of them are even armored. It's pretty impressive. So you know what we haven't talked about in a long time while we're in the Middle East is uh, MH-17. Remember that? Shot down over the Ukraine. Big story. Big, big story. And we haven't heard much about it. And surprisingly, this week, the news broke. I don't know if it has something to do with the timing of Russia and Syria or what exactly. But now we have some answers as what happened to MH17. This morning, investigators in the Netherlands announced they have determined a Russian-made missile brought down Malaysian Airlines Flight 17. The White House said it's an important milestone in the effort to hold the perpetrators accountable. The Dutch Safety Board says a surface-to-air missile destroyed the aircraft. The shootdown over eastern Ukraine in July 2014 killed everyone on board. Charlie Daggett is in London with how Russian missile makers are already saying they were not involved. Charlie, good morning. Good morning. Russia has already said it doesn't dispute Dutch findings that a missile brought the plane down. The disagreement is about the age of the missile used and that Ukrainian forces, not Russia, was responsible for the 298 deaths in July last year. I'm surprised they even covered the Russian perspective. Good for you, CBS News. For months in a hangar in Holland, investigators have been reconstructing MH17 piece by piece. What was once an airplane is now a crime scene. And this morning, the Dutch Safety Board confirmed that the plane was brought down by a Russian-made Buk surface-to-air missile. Flight MH17 crashed as a result of the detonation of a warhead outside the aeroplane, above the left-hand side of the cockpit. They've rebuilt the cockpit and fuselage from the wreckage, employing the same kind of techniques used in the investigation of Pan Am 103 after it exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, back in 1988. They also reconstructed the flight. When it is downed by a buck surface-to-air missile. All 298 people on board were killed. The casualties of a war they had nothing to do with being waged 33,000 feet below. The vast majority were Dutch nationals, which is why that country has taken the lead in the investigation. Most everybody, except Russia, blames Russia. Oh. That the missile was fired either by its own forces or the separatists it backs. But earlier this morning, the Russian company that makes the missile believed responsible contended the plane was shot down by a missile launched by Ukrainian forces from government-held territory. The Dutch findings stopped short of naming which side pulled the trigger, and they'll bring little comfort. And took no questions. For these heartbroken relatives who may now know the what and the why, but are still asking who. The answer to that question will be down to the findings of a separate criminal investigation, also led by the Dutch, which won't be complete until the end of this year or maybe the beginning of next. Gail? Gail? Charlie, thanks. Thanks, Charlie. So there you go. Now, I did a little more digging here, and uh, this is a little visual heavy, but I think it's still worth listening to. And then in the show notes, I have linked to the full press conference and uh, some Russia Today take on it. But let's go with uh, this is sort of a, a raw output of the simulation with some voiceover, if I recall. 
The reconstruction demonstrates the effects of the impact and shows the marks where the cockpit was torn from the rest of the fuselage. The high-energy objects that perforated the aeroplane were also found in the bodies of three crew members seated in the cockpit. The preformed fragments have distinctive shapes, cubic and bow-tie shaped, and were made of a ferrous metal. Some fragments had traces of aluminium and glass on them, proving that they had perforated the aeroplane from the outside. The two left windows of the cockpit particularly show perforation by preformed fragments. Many traces of explosives were found on pieces of wreckage. Also, certain traces of paints were found that match paints on parts of a missile that were recovered from the crash site and missile fragments found in the cockpit and the left wing. The retrieved fragments and traces of paint point to a missile carrying a specific type of warhead and launched by a buck surface-to-air missile system. During the investigation, a number of computer simulations were conducted. These support the surface-to-air missile scenario. The detonation of a 9N314M model warhead was simulated to calculate a point of detonation as well as the damage that could be expected. So what we're seeing here in the visual, and I'm going to talk a little more about it, is uh, that the missile exploded outside, right by the plane, and then the debris from that is actually what damaged the plane. The warhead exploded on a location in space less than one cubic meter to the left of and above the cockpit, spraying its fragments in a characteristic radial circular pattern originating from the missile. These patterns match the damage found on the reconstructed forward section of the fuselage. Further proof of the detonation position was found in the last milliseconds of the cockpit voice recorder. This contained recordings of three crew microphones and an overhead microphone in the cockpit on separate channels. During the final milliseconds, these microphones recorded a sound peak. Based on the difference in timing of the recordings of the sound peak on these four microphones, amazing. a direction could be calculated. It's amazing. And uh, I will put uh, more in the supporter sync if you guys want to check it out. But uh, So they're not really naming who did it. It seems to me that it's pretty hard to deny that it was a Russian missile. And now, of course, the Russians say it was, uh, it was the, um, the government-backed forces, and, of course, the West says it was the Russian-backed forces. I would, I would tend to think it is the Russian-backed forces probably making a mistake. There was like something like 100 flights or more over that territory during the time, and uh, there were also reports of jet planes that were near the location as well that they may have been targeting. So that doesn't cover the whole story about what was up in the air at the time, but it seems like it was definitely a horrible, horrible accident. And while we're on the topic of Russia, let's, let's move into that a little more. Let's talk a little more about how the Obama administration is responding to Russia, I don't know how you want to put it, but maybe stepping up? Syria now, where the Obama administration has given up on a key part of its strategy for fighting the Islamic terror army, ISIS. The U.S. announcing it'll no longer try to train modern, moderate Syrian rebels to join that fight. The rebels want only to fight the Assad dictatorship, which is now supported militarily by Russia. Jonathan Vigliotti is in, the, is in London as the Russian involvement in Syria is complicating the fight against ISIS. Oh, I bet it is. Jonathan, good morning. 
Good morning, Anthony. Russia and the U.S. have polar opposite strategies in Syria, and communication between the two has been pretty much scarce. And we're going to get into that, too. Russia has agreed to resume air safety talks with the U.S. as early as this weekend, but the talks are not about coordinating efforts. Oh? Instead, how to stay out of each other's way. Oh. As U.S. and Russian forces wage separate bombing campaigns over Syria, there is increasing concern of an accidental confrontation. Earlier this week, Pentagon officials said U.S. jets had to maneuver around a Russian aircraft to avoid a mid-air collision. It wasn't U.S. jets. I don't even know why they said that. That's, that is not true at all. It was a 20-mile gap between a U.S. drone and a Russian jet. And they had to reroute the plan for the drone. That was the close call. This weekend's air safety talks are expected to address how much distance there should be between American and Russian aircraft and which language and radio frequencies should be used for communications. The talks are not expected to address the targets each country seeks out and the conflicting goals of the separate missions. The U.S. says Moscow's true motive in Syria is to prop up the Assad regime by targeting its opponents, including so-called moderate rebels who are backed by America and key to containing ISIS. U.S. officials say... So let's get this straight. Moderate-backed rebels are key to containing ISIS. How does that make sense? Even if you could somehow convince this uh, army that you have assembled and armed that is not properly trained, that are really just a, b- a bunch of mercenaries and activists and jihadists or whatever you want to call them, uh, how, even if you could somehow get them to properly topple the Assad regime in such that the U.S. could put somebody in that favors the U.S. instead of Russia, even if you could accomplish that, what are you going to do with all the fighters on the ground after you're done? Where are they going to go? They're just going to go to whoever writes them the next check. So these moderate rebels are only our friends as long as we're paying them. And we are paying them, by the way. We are paying them. So how does this square up? How does this make sense? Because best case scenario is they stick with us long enough to get Assad out, and then we have a whole other problem on our hands, and now they got tons of American guns, money, and trucks. Russia's strategy will help ISIS grow in power. It absolutely has the effect of inflaming ISIL and inflaming extremism, and that's the reason why. So our bombing doesn't have that effect of ISIS, but Russia's bombing of ISIS does have that effect. Now, Russia has launched something. Now, these numbers are a little old because I got these like a couple of days ago. Russia has launched something like 88 airstrikes a day, I think, is their average right now. A day. That's pretty aggressive. They're bombing a lot of targets. The U.S. averages 16 a day. Those numbers are not quite accurate anymore. They've changed. Actually, the U.S. has gone way down. I think Russia's have gone up. But it's a... the, the concept that they're inflaming the problem, they're targeting not just U.S.-backed rebels, they're targeting all of the rebels. They're doing, they're doing way more damage. I have um, consistently said that their strategy is illogical and uh, self-defeating. U.S. Defense Secretary Ash Carter addressed the conflict Friday after meeting with the British Defense Secretary. Instead, Russia could use its significant influence in Syria to bring about the political transition from Assad. We are so dogmatic about this. We just will not let go of it. It's all about Assad. Doesn't matter about the deaths. Doesn't matter about who we're arming, who we're giving guns to. It's all about Assad. That we all know is the real solution. Russia maintains they are fighting all terrorists, including ISIS. But there are early signs their air campaign could further destabilize the region. 
Since Russia first began their bombing campaign last week, Gulf states have reportedly upped their involvement as a countermeasure. With Saudi Arabia allegedly arming anti-Assad rebels with high-powered anti-tank missiles. They call out Saudi Arabia, but the New York Times, and I have it linked in the show notes, uh, actually says that uh, the trickle of weapons from the CIA to the Syrian rebels is now a flood of weapons since Russia entered. They We're calling out Saudi Arabia, but it's not just Saudi Arabia who's stepping up their arming. We, the CIA has opened the floodgates, and, is, and, and we covered just a few minutes ago, we're also dropped, the Pentagon is dropping supplies and ammo. This weekend's air safety talks don't guarantee a resolution. U.S. and Russian officials had similar talks last week, but failed to find an immediate compromise. And despite Russia's claim they have targeted ISIS, the terror group is reportedly gaining ground around Aleppo. Benita. Jonathan Viglio. Now, the, the difficult thing here in their logic, and Arch Linux Russians pointed out, is uh, ISIS has been attacking the Assad troops, too. Uh, Assad is fighting ISIS. Iran is fighting ISIS. And now Russia is fighting ISIS. ISIS is not a pro-Assad group. Of course, that doesn't matter when you're not painting it that way. In fact, Obama himself is trying to paint Russia as in a major point of weakness right now. In fact, Obama's patting himself on the back, says, I'm running Russia into the ground, y'all. President Obama ripping into Vladimir Putin during that same interview on 60 Minutes that's getting so much attention today. Obama refuting claims that Putin is challenging U.S. leadership in the world, saying, on the contrary, that he's essentially running Russia into the ground. Kevin Corn is live at the White House with the latest on this. Kevin. Hey, Jenna, good day to you. We've heard that argument before here at the White House. Actually, I think you and I have actually talked about it before. We've heard Go John Kevin. Ernest, the press secretary, say the president's view is simple, that Vladimir Putin is so desperate to maintain this relationship with the Assad regime and make sure that they keep a foothold in Syria, that they'll do anything, even if it means hurting their own economy. Now, what's funny about that statement is you could back that up and you could play it again and say the same thing about the U.S. The U.S. is so desperate to knock Assad out of power that they'll do anything, including running their own economy into the ground because that's exactly what we're doing now play it back listen to kevin coke here oh i'm sorry cork it just sounds like he's on coke listen to i'm kidding listen to kevin here and now just as a mental exercise replace what he's saying with the u.s and obama right because wouldn't all that apply about it before we've heard josh Ernest, the press secretary say the president's view is simple that vladimir putin is so desperate to maintain this relationship with the assad regime Obama is so desperate to take Assad out of power and make sure that they keep a foothold in Syria to make sure we put a dictator in Syria that has the best U.S. interests at heart that they'll do anything, even if it means hurting their own economy. Now, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, Kevin, you nailed it. But the president has been saying consistently that they're operating out of fear and out of weakness. And he says no matter how many sorties they fly, no matter how much in the way of saber rattling they, uh, we see, what they're really afraid of is a precipitous, disorganized fall of the Assad regime. They don't want that because they want to make sure that whoever the successor is will turn to Moscow and not to Washington. Right. Exactly. But what the president is arguing is that they're doing this. They're propping up a guy despite hurting their own economy. He's challenging your leadership, Mr. President. Yeah, He's no, challenging your leadership. That, that, Steve, I, I, I got to tell you, if, if you think that running your economy into the ground and having to send troops in in order to prop up your only ally. Your only ally. Your only ally is leadership, then we've got a different definition of leadership. My definition of leadership would be 
leading on climate change and international accord that potentially will get in Paris. Oh, okay. No, Obama, your definition of leadership is taking executive action and starting military campaigns without the approval of Congress. That's your version of leadership. Your version of leadership is drawing red lines that don't make any sense and trying to blame the Assad regime for chemical weapons when it was the rebels that used chemical weapons. Your version of leadership is lying about your goals until recently that your main end goal is toppling Assad. Assad is an ally of Russia. They have been allies since before this war started. I'm not trying to defend Russia. I'm not trying to defend what they're doing or Putin. It's Putin got legal authority from the Russian Senate, got authorized to go into Syria to help an ally after being requested by that ally to come in. Those are, those are two very different types of leadership. Okay, so the long view is simple. Assad will go eventually. But who will have a hand in picking his successor? That's what Moscow wants. The president says they're simply willing to run their economy. So that's the simple long goal, you guys. Simple long goals. Assad's got to go. Into the ground to get that done. By the way, critics, Jenna, would argue that the more Moscow flexes its muscle in the region, the more other countries may line up behind Moscow. And that could weaken Washington's influence and power in the region. And I should also point out that the Soviet or the Russians, that is. Oh, the what? I'm sorry. The what? You're not that he's biased. I'm sorry. What were they? What did you call them? What was that? And I should also point out that the Soviet or the Russians, that is, oh. say that they uh, operated some conducted 50 sorties over the weekend and they hit just about all their targets. Again, that's the Russians uh, giving us that information. Meanwhile, the Pentagon says that the U.S. dropped some 50 tons of munitions oh. and arms oh. to support the opposition oh, good. in the region. Things tons, getting very good. heated in Syria, even today, Jenna. We're going to be talking a lot about this with General Keene a little later on in the program. Kevin, thank you very much for the oh, roundup. A lot of news to get to regarding that. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. So there you go. Now, of course, uh, that's, not, uh, that's not the whole story. And it's not like Putin's just sitting back and not listening to what they say. And it turns out that they've been requesting to work with us on an ongoing basis. We're just denying that. The Kremlin accusing Washington of refusing to agree to a military delegation to talk about Syria. So Russia asked a military delegation to either come to Moscow or to come to D.C. and talk this out. Vladimir Putin with some choice words for that coalition. Which we turned down. Saying, quote, I think some of our partners simply have mush for brains. They do not have a clear understanding of what really happens in the country and what goals they are seeking to achieve. Greg Palcott reacts now, reporting from London. Greg. Hi, Bill. Yeah, tough talk coming today from the Kremlin regarding the U.S. and Syria, but we've come to expect that these days. Uh, We heard in a briefing from Russian Foreign Secretary Lavrov today, he stated that the U.S. has said that it will not send a delegation to Moscow and has refused to accept a Russian delegation in Washington. So let me get this straight. Russia is refusing to work with us. Russia is arbitrarily uh, targeting and bombing uh, just all over uh, Syria, just arbitrarily, just outside of ISIS. Uh, but yet when Russia says, well, let's talk, we say no. And they say, OK, well, if you don't want to come here, how about we'll come to you? No, no, we're not doing that. No. Regarding strategy in Syria, he called the U.S.-led year-long campaign against ISIS insignificant <laughs> and insincere. But actually, Woo! there's nothing too new about what he was talking about. Defense Secretary Carter yesterday said the U.S. would not associate with Russia's approach to Syria, uh, aimed at, he believed, defending the Syrian leader Assad, someone the U.S. wants to go. He called it wrong 
strategically short-sighted. Carter also said, however, that he does expect an agreement with Russia's military about air safety protocols. He said there'll be more talks today between U.S. and Russian officials regarding that good, considering that uh, close encounter that occurred between Russian and close U.S. Encounter. jets over the weekend. My it wasn't a jet. It was a drone. My favorite line, however comes from Vladimir Putin. He said yesterday, he claims Russia has said to the U.S., tell us who not to pound and we won't pound them, considering... So Putin has said to the U.S., and there, you know, you can take this different ways, but what Putin has essentially said is, if you tell us who not to bomb, we won't bomb them. All right, you say we're bombing the wrong targets? Share your intelligence with us. Tell us not who to bomb. You know why we won't do it? Because then we're giving them a map of all the U.S.-backed rebels. And what if it's a pretty damn big map? bill that Russia has been pounding to at least some degree U.S.-backed moderate rebels. It's not surprising that he didn't cough up those targets. And we might have to talk to Iran, too, because there are new reports today that uh, troops from Iran pouring into Syria. The wicked brew. Greg Palcott, thanks. The latest from London. A wicked brew. That sounds like a title to me. Suggest that. A wicked brew. Now, the uh, Pentagon is sort of denying that the weapons were meant for the wrong group. Oh, yeah, they they landed in the hands of the Kurds, and we weren't weren't trying to arm the Kurds, because we said we weren't going to do that. We just actually dropped lots and lots of ammo. Defense Department walking a fine line in the Syrian civil war, sending 50 tons of ammo and grenades to the fighters that are battling ISIS there. The airdrop signaling Washington's shift from the failed rebel training program to now arming them. The Pentagon denying the weapons were meant for Syrian Kurds despite being dropped in their home province. Neighboring Turkey considers the Kurds enemies, but the U.S. considers them a NATO ally. That's right. We consider them a NATO ally. Uh, so isn't that interesting? So there's Putin saying, tell us who to bomb, tell us who not to bomb. And we always saying, we got this covered, but yet we're dropping supplies to the wrong people. It doesn't really make much sense. And I got to wonder, will maybe these talks about air safety lead to something else? Because it seems like if the U.S. is gives up on toppling Assad, it seems like there could be other ways to accomplish that, too, other than murdering thousands of people. If they're willing to give up on toppling Assad, we could work together with Russia to clean up Syria and clean up ISIS. It's not uncommon for us to work in military efforts with Russia. In fact, World War II is a really good example of that. Report is that ISIS put out a recording today that calls for Muslims to launch a holy war against Russians and Americans. See that? ISIS against Russia and America. What if we accommodated them? We go to the space with them. Can't we go to the war with them? Let's bring in Mike Barrett. He's a former Defense Department intelligence officer. It was this or lead with the debate, and I chose this. Mike, we, let's, let's just concede what we've done was wrong. What we're doing is not working and move forward. I like that approach. What's so wrong about that? Maybe it's going to take a change in the office. I don't know. But that seems like a pretty reasonable thing to do at this point. Could this offer some hope? Yeah, Shep, I actually think it could. I mean, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think you're going to see just U.S. and Russia. You're going to want to see it under the umbrella of the United Nations, do something through the Security Council just to give kind of that fig leaf of international legitimacy. But what he's really saying there makes sense to me is it wouldn't be a direct uh, America-Russia partnership. It would be through the U.N. It would be something through the U.N. That way the two big countries aren't, you know, coming together at the table. They're, uh, They're going through an existing body that would also give Putin some legitimacy and Obama some legitimacy. Certainly Obama... President Obama is going to need that domestically, and Putin doesn't necessarily want to be seen as directly aligned with the U.S. 
But uh, yeah, this is how you get it done. This is how you get the deal done. You take a look at the situation, you figure out what do you actually want to achieve, which in this case is the death of ISIS, and you make the deal to make that happen. No, that's not the goal. That's the problem. The goal is getting rid of Assad by any means necessary, so that way we put a U.S. pro-dictator in there. That's the goal. But if we change the goal, which apparently is never going to happen because this has obviously been in the works for a really, really long time, if you change the goal to actually getting rid of ISIS, well, let's be honest, the world's largest military could do it on their own, but might as well get Russia to help have them uh, spend some capital. If uh, Russia can bring together Iran and Assad from the one side... They already have. ...and the U.S. can kind of bring together and keep under control the Sunni states from the other side... Ah, there's the problem, isn't it? We could actually, you know, really uh, tighten the noose here on ISIS and uh, and bring those guys down. Gordon Adams and Stephen Walt uh, wrote this for the New York Times today. And one of the questions was, of course, what about overreach with the two of us in there together? There's always that possibility. There is the risk of overreach, but I think there's much more of an overreach when you have a muddled strategy, which is frankly what the U.S. has had for four years. As you and I have talked about many times, at the end of the day, right, if you want ISIS gone, then you make the deal with Assad. It's a deal with the devil, but that's sometimes what you got to do in the real world. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day... This I mean, we work with really bad characters already. Look at Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, we work with really awful characters on an ongoing basis and totally bury all of the horrible things they do. This is where we're down to. If we continue doing this half measures that we've been doing, arming some Sunnis, hoping that other Sunnis will take out ISIS, but not take out Assad, and then hope that the Kurds have success, hope that the uh, Russian and the Turkish and the U.S. and the other airline, uh, air forces don't bang into each other, hope that no missiles go astray. I mean, you know, you look at a situation last week where we had the hospital bombed by accident. You have a situation where military uh, weapons are being used by multiple sides for multiple objectives and a very small geography. That is a recipe for disaster. How can the world take a deep breath and step back from this? We can come together through the international organization, again, mostly as a fig leaf. I'm not looking at the U.N. for troops or anything, but you want to have that sort of... Yeah, you just want some political top cover to give you the excuse to make the deal that needs to be made. And let me be clear about this, Shep. It is a horrible deal. Nobody wants to make a deal with Assad. Nobody wants to reward Putin for his, you know, for his coming in aggressively there without coming in through the international community. No, they need to reward us for doing that. But at the end of the day, the facts on the ground are what the facts on the ground are. ISIS has got to go. And if that means Assad has to maintain some leadership over part of the country, so be it. Politically, could we stomach that? Could, could leaders in, in, in the White House and all, all the adoring men and could the Pentagon, could they all get on board with this and work somehow with Vladimir Kianis Masmacho Putin? I think the Pentagon actually would be much more willing to do this than the political leadership. Uh, I think the Obama administration, like I said, if we go through the U.N., they'd probably be willing to, to take this because that is kind of where their, where their heart lies is diplomacy as a solution. The military knows it's a mess. That's why we haven't been going in there. That's why we haven't done the no-fly zone. Some of these things that people bandy about as though it's very simple and no cost. The military pays the price for that. Yeah. We know how hard it is in the military yeah. to keep good intelligence good point. to make sure that you never have a mistake to watch out for collateral damage. So I think the military would come to grips with it at the end of the day. It's the politicians. The challenge is going to be the political rhetoric, particularly during a uh, presidential season. Yep, that, yeah, the that's problem for sure. is always the political rhetoric. Mike Barrett, it's great to see you. Thank you. Uh, I just thought that was an interesting uh, clip to end on. Um, and then in the supporter sync uh, submitted by uh, Vernuda, Vernuda, <laughs> that's probably not how you say it. Uh, he has uh, provided us with the uh, WikiLeaks leak that you probably heard about that reveals how the U.S. aggressively pursued regime change in Syria, igniting a bloodbath. And it goes through the analysis that the intelligence agencies do, like uh, did. Like here's a quote they say. 
We believe Bashir's weaknesses are in how he chooses to react to looming issues, both perceived and real, such as the conflict between economic reform steps, however limited, and entrenched corrupt forces, the Kurdish question and the potential threat for, to the regime from increasing presence of transiting Islamic extremists, Islamist extremists, transiting, sorry, Islamists, so transiting Islamist extremists going through Syria. The cable summarizes our assessment of these vulnerabilities and suggests that there may be actions, statements, and signals that the USG can send that will improve the likelihood of such an opportunity arising. It goes on. That's just the opening. It goes on. They talk about how they could play on Sunni fears of Iranian influence. They talk about how they could manipulate the people. Uh, they talk about Persian meddling. Yeah. Weaning Syria from Iran. All of this is in here. So it's a really good leak, and it's in the supporter sync if you'd like to read it as a PDF. Uh, speaking of things to read in the supporter sync, we have a whole bunch on the uh, TPP, and I want to introduce you uh, to the TPP. You might be familiar with Ben Swan. He does these reality check series for a CBS affiliate, and uh, he actually does pretty good researched work, and uh, he's got good energy, so I thought, uh, you know, he's pumped up. He's ready to tell us about the TPP, so Ben Swan's going to introduce it to us. Right here in Atlanta, a dozen Pacific nations, along with the United States, have finalized a massive trade agreement called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But is the TPP literally the worst trade deal in the world? This is a reality check you won't see anywhere else. Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, like President Barack Obama, is a big supporter of the TPP. The mayor told Sharon Reed that what is really important about the TPP, beating China to other Asian Pacific countries. It really is essential that we beat China. Got to beat China. Into a relationship with these Asia-Pacific countries. Now, this is sort of the the main theme, the main meme that they want to push to kind of um, resonate with, you know, the American people. Because screw China. America should be ahead of China. We don't want those Chiners getting ahead of us. They're taking enough of our jarbs. So the whole idea here is you play on this element of it. And it's absolutely legitimate. It is truly an element of the TPP. But that's not what the part that I think we're all going to take issue with. And that the United States sets the rules of the road and the terms of the engagement. And we have a very important ally in the form of Japan uh, that we need to send a clear signal to about where they want to place um, their, their global future. That's an interesting statement. So is that the case? Well, the truth is, defining what the TPP actually is is very, very difficult. Why? Well, because the text of the agreement is super secret. Now, seriously here, it is so secret that not even all members of Congress have been allowed to read it. Even weirder, those who have been able to read it had to do it in a secret room in the basement of the Capitol building. Not just that, but they had to check in and out when they did it so they knew exactly who reviewed and for how long was in the secret room reviewing the documents. And, of course, only a select... A uh, set of uh, legislators were allowed to go in there to begin with. It was a very, very, very closely monitored. There was video cameras set up. Seriously. That doesn't mean, however, that we don't know anything about the TPP and the little bits that we do know about it reveal that this really isn't a massive trade deal. Take, for instance, the latest meeting over the TPP with world leaders who met right here in Atlanta. What were they discussing? The United States argued for longer protections for exclusivity pers- for prescription drugs. We're going to get into that hopefully in a separate episode because the prescription drug thing, it's not just... Uh, exclusivity. It's also how lawsuits and class action lawsuits are brought against pharmaceutical companies when there's damage or death occurred because of the medication. There's some normalizing across these nations of how that kind of thing is handled. And you could probably guess it's not in the consumer's favor. The U.S. delegation arguing that the trade agreement should expand globally a 12-year exclusivity period for drugs to treat diseases like cancer. 
Australia, which allows only five years of exclusivity, and five other delegations, they argued against it, saying it would keep life-saving medicines from patients who cannot afford them. Well, get this. Doctors Without Borders has now come out against this, saying TPP countries have agreed to the United States government and multinational drug company demands that will raise the price of medicines for millions. The big losers in the TPP are patients and treatment providers in developing countries. The TPP will go down in history as the worst trade agreement for access to medicines in developing countries. End quote. Well, that is not very encouraging. So what else do we know about the TPP? Well, it's not just an agreement extending monopolies for drug companies. It is also an agreement that creates massive global copyright protections. Here's the thing. The Electronic Freedom Foundation says that despite its earlier promises that the TPP would bring greater balance to copyright more than any other recent trade agreement, the most recent leak of the intellectual property chapter belies their claims. The U.S. Trade Representative has still failed to live up to its word, they write, that it would enshrine meaningful public rights to use copyrighted content in this agreement. Okay, so the TPP is not good for anyone who uses intellectual property, books, magazines, movies. I'm worried about people who publish on YouTube. I mean, even in this episode, I have to skip a clip that I think is within fair use to use, but I had to skip it because... I get taken down. And that's a little scary when you normalize what the repercussions are for that. Anything you might find on the Internet. It's also not good for medical patients around the world. So is there anything good in this agreement? Well, Secretary of State John Kerry says it will create 650,000 new jobs. It will create jobs. The net result for the United States will be to grow our economy and strengthen America's position. Jobs in the banking industry. In the world. Yeah, but that's actually not true either. According to the Washington Post, who gave Secretary Kerry four Pinocchios on that statement, the claim that the TPP would create jobs does not take into account income gains in changing wages. According to the government's own sources, imports and exports would increase by the same amount, and that results in a net number of zero new jobs. A trade agreement that creates no jobs sounds like NAFTA. A trade agreement that creates greater global monopolies on medicine and one that creates more enforcement of copyright and intellectual property, well, that would make it much worse than NAFTA. President Obama must wait at least 90 days after notifying Congress of the deal before he can sign it and then send it on to Capitol Hill. The full text of that agreement must be made public for at least 60 of those days. And we, as the public, will learn more then. But what you need to know today is that the worst thing about the TPP, something called the ISDS, Under the ISDS, foreign corporations would be allowed to appeal legal decisions to international tribunals rather than face domestic court. Think Monsanto. Think pharmaceutical companies. And that means that the laws of individual countries like the United States wouldn't matter. U.S. sovereignty in many areas would be lost. That's Reality Check. Let's talk about that tonight on Twitter. Yeah, let's. Uh, So it's a bad deal. It's not a very good deal at all. And there's a lot to get into here on it. And I think we're going to have to spread it out over a few episodes. But we are now at a stage where you're going to see a lot of propaganda. You're going to start getting a lot of stuff in your face. And if this next clip is right, a lot of it's going to be coming from Obama directly. All right. Give us the lowdown. How likely is this to, to pass? Well, there's about 535 members of Congress that still get a say in this, Pim, before it is officially sealed. But look, there's really three major hurdles that the White House is dealing with now that negotiators have finalized the top line points of this deal. First is public perception. Already, this was an unpopular issue in the United States. Trade generally is, not just with Democrats, which are traditionally against these agreements, but also with Republicans. A July Pew poll had only 36 percent thinking that this was a good deal for the country. So the White House needs outreach right now. You're going to 
see public comments from the Department of Agriculture today from the president. You're going to see a blitz mm. of radio and TV. And so that's one area. The other is losing, losing key allies. Pim, in order to even start the process of this, they needed to clear the way to have this bill considered on just an up or down basis in the months ahead. So they have a group of allies that are already set right now. That's a key component of this. The other thing, Pim, campaign politics. This is obviously coming right in the heart of a presidential campaign season, and the White House needs to ensure that while there will be a lot of rhetoric tossed around, that doesn't seep into Capitol Hill where some of their supporters start wavering whether or not they want to give this the go-ahead when they vote on it early next year. Hey, uh, Phil, you know, it tells you something about the process involved when the details of the deal aren't necessarily one of the three things that are the obstacles. Hmm. Are there specific details in the deal that the president can look to and say, this is going to help American business? Look, top line, the administration has been hammering already 18,000 cuts to tariffs. This should open some doorways, particularly in the agricultural sector, in Japan and Canada, for the automotive industry, in places like Brunei and Vietnam. There are specific areas here, but, Pim, one of the most interesting things about yesterday, when this deal was sealed, before anything was released, I already had three dozen statements of opposition. From now, this is going to be the, this is going to be, I want to back this up, because this is going to be the talking point from the Obama administration. Look, you could look, everybody, look. People who are going to hate this regardless, look, they're going to hate it regardless of the deal. They hated it before we even told them what was in the deal. I already had three dozen statements of opposition from environmental groups and progressive activists. Big business is already pushing support for this. So, Pim, no matter what this deal looked like, there were already entrenched interests that were going to take one side or the other. So right now, it comes for the administration to kind of push a top-line point to make supporters comfortable. One of the interesting things, Pim, Ford Motor Company, big business, obviously a big supporter of this deal. Ford Motor Company, because of currency manipulation, already out yesterday in opposition to the deal. They need to ensure that big business, big companies stay behind them on this. That was an early warning sign. All right, Phil, give you about 15 seconds. Who is the point person for making this pitch? And this is going to be, I think this is probably an accurate assessment. The Congress. It's the president himself. When it comes to the details, it's their trade representative, Mike Froman. But President Barack Obama, if he wants this to be the legacy ceiling deal that it is, he's going to have to sell this himself. That's him. right. That's what I think, too. Obama's going to have to get out there and sell it. And you're going to get a lot of stuff in your face about this. A lot of stuff. And remember, the numbers they're kicking around are bullcrap. Like John Kerry's number are bullcrap. So I want to say thank you to Jim Random, uh, Prometheus 6, Shadow OFV, and again, Vernanduda, uh, for submitting really, really good documentation that we're digging through right now, uh, including the final leaked TPP text is all we feared is the title of one of them. And probably the one that I want to point the supporters to is the full chapter on IP, intellectual property. We have the full, thanks to WikiLeaks and, of course, thanks to our submitter, we have the full section, which we are reading through right now to uh, get more details on. But it's about as bad as you would expect. It normalizes copyright law. It essentially applies the DMCA to everyone in this group, aspects of it, essentially. It's devastating. And, of course, if Biden runs, he's going to be all for this. So there you go. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, the beginning of our following, is starting right now, now that we're starting to get more and more details. It's pretty gross, though, and uh, it's something that I think will be unfolding for months still, and then it's going to get caught up in the 2016 election. It's going to get spun up in politics, plus you're going to have Obama trying to set his legacy in stone. It's going to be a mess. And meanwhile, average consumers in all of these economies are having more rights taken away and more rights given to big corporations. Now, the big corporations' argument is, is look— 
They always have to start it with that. Look, it's too expensive for us to figure out all of the legal nuances in every country that we go into. So we got to standardize this kind of stuff because we have run of the land in America and we want run of the land everywhere else. That's basically it. It's kind of disgusting. And I don't really see much in the coverage in the Western media. Uh, I, I tried to get some clips and, you know, a local CBS affiliate from Ben Swan was the best I could find. So we're continuing to look for good audio that helps explain it as well, but we also have good documentation in the supporter sync. So why don't it's been a long time since we've wrapped up the show on a high note, so why don't we do it? Let's wrap this one up on a high note. Pot sales are flying high in Colorado with monthly marijuana sales now passing the $100 million mark for the first time. That according to the state's Department of Revenue. Alicia Cunha has that story live from Denver. Alicia. Hi, John. Yes, if you look at the trend, marijuana sales are only increasing. According to the Colorado Department of Revenue, recreational and medical dispensaries brought in a combined $100.6 million in the month of August, a record since recreational pot became legal here. For comparison, the first month of sales in January 2014 tallied a little less than $50 million. To grasp what all of this means, consider this. In the fiscal year running from July 1st, 2014 to end of June 2015, 15, Colorado became the first state in history to bring in more tax revenue from marijuana than alcohol by a large margin. Now, check that out. Is that not a thing? And, you know, I am a firm believer that uh, cannabis is much safer than alcohol. Now, both are vices. Both lead to you being inebriated. So there's no arguing that. However, I think as far as what uh, is difficult on the body and what makes people do really stupid things behind the wheel or in bars... Alcohol takes the cake on that one. So that's fascinating to me that pot sales. Now, pot's more expensive, too, obviously. That's a given. But isn't that, and you know, it's in stark contrast to how bad Washington State is screwing it up. Even though Washington legalized it before Colorado, we are screwing it up so bad compared to Colorado. It's really sad to see. I'm glad at least Colorado seems to be doing it right. The first state in history to bring in more tax revenue from marijuana than alcohol by a large margin. I think more people are realizing that it's really not that big of a deal and there are, you know, there's there's a source of income to be had, you know, for various reasons. Meanwhile, Colorado is grappling with illegal cultivation operations that have moved in. In September and October, federal, state, and local law enforcement arrested 32 people for illicit growing and seized nearly 20,000 plants. Now, that is, I'm sure, a problem. It would seem likely that people would think they could get away with it more in a state that has it legalized. But think about that. Think about that number for just a second. 32. Hmm. 32. In the first state in the nation to have a fully rolled out recreational cannabis program. They've only arrested 32 people for not following the rules. There's a couple of ways to look at that number, but to me that seems kind of remarkable. I'm surprised it's not 132 or 232. 32 people in Colorado. That, to me, is remarkable. Federal, state, and local law enforcement arrested 32 people for illicit growing and seized nearly 20,000 plants. People come in from out of state thinking that because uh, marijuana is legal under state law in Colorado, that, well, maybe their marijuana operation won't be noticed because people say, well, it's just another marijuana operation. Um, Part of what we're doing with these takedowns is to send a clear message that that's not the case. 
Now, recreational pot sales became legal in the state of Oregon at the start of this month, and is, that state is now seeing medical marijuana business drop as a result. The Oregon Cannabis Business Council says it's market saturation. So, John, there's an effort right now to allow those who are purchasing medical marijuana to get tax-exempt status on those purchases. John. All right. What a story. Alicia Acuna in Denver. Thank you. What she's really saying at the end there is they're dismantling the medical program and then giving people who need medical a card on a registration system so that way they can get a discount. See, traditionally, the way it works in Washington is there's no registration. You become a medical marijuana patient, you get a license, and you have to renew it every year. You have to get reevaluated by a doctor, they renew it. But there's no list. There's no master directory. But if they're going to institute a tax-free marijuana where the whole system goes recreational, and they will, by doing so... Remove a lot of CBD products from the market that help people to have genuine pain. A lot of things like that will happen. And they'll also be creating a master list for everyone who's a medical patient. So that way they can then get tax exempt status at the end of the year. It's not a good system. Colorado is handling it much, much better. Two systems working very well together. We'll see what goes in the long run. But that was an interesting, really interesting numbers. 32. 32 arrests. Man, you'd think you'd do two big grow bus and you'd get 32 people just in those two bus. The whole state. That's pretty impressive. Hmm. So we have really benefited this week from your help researching the TPP. It's given us a lot of leads, a lot of stuff to look into, and it's a major, major issue that affects way more people than just U.S. residents. So if you have any interest, go to unfiltered.reddit.com, submit your stories there, give us your links. If you'd like to keep this show going, patreon.com slash unfilter. Thank you. Thank you. 423. Look at that. And look at We got a high note now. That's not all we're going to give, but uh, that is amazing. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. I really appreciate it. I got to just say one more time, go check out 161. It goes perfectly with this episode. The two flow really well together. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do two episodes back to back this week is I knew we had to cover the Russia Syria stuff, but I also knew we had TPP and debate stuff to get to. So two episodes this week, and I really appreciate the support that you guys stepped up. It's really awesome. It really makes me feel great. I'd love to see some more support over at patreon.com slash unfilter. Keep the show going. Keep the research engines turning. Keep producer Matt employed and myself. And also a shout out to Mr. Chase at Nunes. Give him a hi. Tell him we miss him. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of Unfiltered. I'll give one more plug, unfiltered.reddit.com, for content, stories, extra stuff, and also check out the show notes. We got some good stuff linked up there. And if you're a supporter, really good stuff in the supporter sync this week. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of Unfiltered. See you right back here next week. Next week.